Welcome to The Digital Patient, where we discuss the latest advancements in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front lines. Today, we're joined by our very special guest, Dr. Claire Graves. Dr. Graves graduated from Yale University and earned her medical degree at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. She completed a residency in general surgery at New York Presbyterian Hospital, Columbia University, and attended UCSF for a fellowship in endocrine surgery and a research fellowship in surgical innovation. She is certified by the American Board of Surgery and holds a certificate for the Da Vinci System robotic training. Dr. Graves' clinical and research interests center around surgical treatments of disorders of the thyroid, parathyroid, and adrenal glands, with special clinical interest and expertise in surgical innovation and minimally invasive techniques. She is also interested in the ways that patients experience their diseases, treatments, and interactions with healthcare. Outside of the hospital, Dr. Graves enjoys running and hiking, traveling, practicing yoga, and exploring Sacramento with her husband and dog, Billy. Uh, Dr. Claire Graves. Claire, can we call you Claire? Absolutely. Awesome. Claire, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, and thank you for that very kind introduction. You're welcome. Just a, a question I have. Is Billy your dog or your husband, or are they both Billy? <laughs> <laughs> Just my dog. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's honestly fantastic to have you on uh, the show today. You've been um, really a, a, like a, a champion of pioneering digital patient engagement for uh, endocrine at UC Davis, but really just championing digital technology for patients. The question that I had right off the top, uh, given that your last name is Graves, I was wondering, are you related in any way to Robert Graves who, who coined uh, Graves disease? That's a great question. Um, I have to tell you that that your question sparked a little bit of a, a, a deep dive into my family history uh, with my parents. So I, we we chatted about it this weekend. Um, I so no is the short answer. Uh, Dr. Graves was in uh, Ireland in the mid 1800s, and tracing back, it looks like um, the Graves side of my family actually um, has been in Virginia since around the 1600s. So oh. we trace it pretty far back. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. So wow, that's really maybe cool. way, way, way back there, but but nothing directly. Right. Oh, that's that's really sweet. So Dr. Graves, if, if that's not the connection, then um, how did you end up deciding on, on endocrine surgery? Uh, good question. I do feel like there, yeah, there was some element of destiny with my name, um, but really it's all, I have, I have my mentors to thank. I, um, I was lucky enough to work with uh, James Lee and Jen Kuo at Columbia mm -hmm. University. And then uh, my, during my fellowship um, at UCSF um, and, and really working with Dr. Lee and Dr. Kuo during my residency, uh, just, I realized that I really loved the diseases. I loved the patients. I loved the operations. Um, it just really sparked a, a passion in me for endocrine surgery. It's funny. So like Ellen and I um, did an episode with, um, Dr. Namiri, who's a bariatric surgeon out in uh, the Carolinas region. And he had like a really similar response where one of his mentors, actually, I think also in California, mm -hmm. I think, was it at UC? That was UCSF Fresno. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, Dr. Higa, if I'm saying his name yep. right? Yeah, Higa. Um, but he was saying the same thing where the mentorship there really um, sparked his interest in bariatrics, which makes me wonder, you know, if you just found like a great mentor in almost any specialty, maybe you would have ended up there. I, you never know. Um, <laughs> I did. I had a lot of great mentors, but yeah, I think that's absolutely true. When you when you get to work with people who love what they do, it's hard not to you know love that too. Mm -hmm. um, not always, but <laughs> but certainly in this case. 
Fair. Um, so Claire, actually, you know, it seemed you were almost destined to pursue something like endocrine surgery um, back from, from the research that we've done. Uh, you know, you've always been pursuing academic excellence. Um, if I have this correct, you were uh, back at the Georgia Governor's Honors Program in high school uh, back in Georgia growing up, which is a, a super prestigious uh, program to, to get into. Uh, I'm curious, as long as that's correct, where did that motivation come from? Yeah, that's correct. That's a that's a deep dive. Um, I have strong ties to the Governor's Honors Program. So I, I was a student there in high school, and then I actually was a, a counselor there for three years in college. So three summers was my summer job. Um, it's a fantastic program, um, a really um, special experience for Georgia high schoolers from around the whole state um, to come together. Um, and and each student has their own major um, that they're sent in and they're nominated by their school and and then uh, they get to pick a minor um, and it's sort of like a little mini you know college experience where you focus in on things that you really love so i was a um a communicative arts or english hmm. major and then i minored in um improv theater actually no way <laughs> Um, and again, I think it really boils down to, to mentors, um, you know, in my, my high school, um, got to nominate, I think two students for the program and, and contacted me and said, we think you'd be a good fit. What do you think about it? Um, and so I'm just lucky to have people that, you know, um, uh, believed in me and thought I would make good use of that opportunity. So, so Al and I are actually, I think both very big improv fans and actually I think, <laughs> really? Yeah, I think was it was it Askers or was it Sages? We were in Seattle a couple of years ago, and we yeah. went to I think the local improv theater. I, re I recall. I think it was Askers. We went to the improv. It was super rainy that day, that night. Yeah. So, so, so Claire, awesome. is there a big improv scene in Georgia, or, or where did that start? You know, I I was like, you know, it's summer and I don't want to be in classrooms mm. for my whole day. <laughs> so um, I liked them to, you know, visual arts and performing arts. And I did some theater and uh, I'm a singer. I was a singer oh. all through high school and oh. college. So um, so I, yeah, kind of on a whim, I was like, well, I've never tried this, but I might as well. Now's the time to be able to try it. Yeah. Um, and so I, I have never performed, you know, outside of that experience in improv, I have to say, um, but I had a great time. I made some really good friends um, and I do love going to shows and, uh, you know, watching it. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, now's your chance. We're going to do some improv on that. So actually, Claire, I was curious then, you know, after high school, what drew you initially to New York? Why did you choose to move so far from home? And, and what was special about New York to you? Uh, so I um, am not someone that had always been fascinated by New York. Um, it sort of um, came to be because of a specific program that I did at, at Mount Sinai Medical School. So um, Mount Sinai has a humanities and medicine program, um, which is an early application program mm -hmm. uh, to med school um, for students who are um, who are humanities focused, humanities mm -hmm. majors to be able to apply early, get into med school without having to, um, to take the MCAT. So I, mm -hmm. I joke that I snuck into med school through the back door. So we didn't have to take the MCAT. I got to take um, physics and uh, organic chemistry requirements um, at Mount Sinai during the summer so that I um, could pursue other things during college. Um, so I was actually a religious studies major uh, wow. in college, and um, I did a lot of art history and a lot of political science and um, less less science classes because of that program. Um, 
And so I, I heard about that program completely randomly from a, a friend that I was having dinner with my freshman year of college, who was a year ahead of me and was applying for it. And I said, well, that that seems like a really good fit for me. I'd always thought about medicine, but had been a little bit hesitant about giving up other things in order to do those mm -hmm. pre-med requirements. Um, and so I was I was lucky enough to to get in during my sophomore year. Um, oh. And so so that's how I ended up in New York. <laughs> that was a long roundabout way. No, that's that. that's awesome. I'm I'm curious. Um, you know, with your background being in arts and religion and and like not science directly, how how has that impacted your you know, scientific method and the approach that you take today, has there been a, a you know, do you recognize anything different because of the, the background that you've had? You know, I, I think it comes in, in all kinds of different ways. I think just having that sort of broader mindset um, and sort of looking at, at like, you know, humanity's sort of brain where I, I look at things from different perspectives and kind of think about things from a from a bird's eye view sometimes that science tends to look at more on a microscopic level mm. um, I think can only help in your interactions in teams and with patients and um, you know multidisciplinary discussions just really sort of sort of taking things in the whole picture as opposed mm -hmm. to looking at, at different tiny aspects of them right and then that to me is so fitting with endocrine and the endocrine system because it is such a holistic system. That's absolutely. Yeah, yeah. maybe that's where maybe that was one of the things that drew me drew me that direction. That's awesome. That's gonna be a great podcast title from improv and theater to <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So well, so Claire, then after you know your your medical school, what happened? You you got tired of the cold weather and you decided to move out west and, and go to California or what drove you there? Uh, so I initially um, went out to California during residency, in the middle of my residency for a research fellowship. Um, I thought at that time I was going to be a pediatric surgeon. That was my focus. Um, and so I went to work uh, with one of the pediatric surgeons at UCSF, uh, Michael Harrison, who um, is known as a father of fetal surgery. So he mm. really pioneered fetal surgery. Um, and as part of that, developed new devices and really had to innovate and come up with tools, you know, brand new tools for these things that had never been done before. Um, and so he uh, has continued that innovation um, and has been coming up with all kinds of um, pri primarily pediatric surgery focused medical devices, but um, for adults as well. Um, as part of that, UCSF has really embraced it. They have a surgical innovations program and mm -hmm. they sponsor um, surgical residents every year uh, to be a surgical innovation fellow. So I initially went out um, to do that and then mm -hmm. um, ended up uh, um, switching gears into endocrine surgery, but also UCSF has an amazing endocrine surgery fellowship. So that was a nice um, sort of segue into mm -hmm. that. Um, and in the midst of all of that, I ended up meeting my husband who is from San Francisco. So uh, it's hard to get a Californian out of California as I have <laughs> discovered, but that's okay. And I'm, I am very happy with, uh, with California as well, so <laughs> especially cool. right now. I was laughing with some friends that are, you know, in, in teen temperatures in the snow, as you guys may also <laughs> well, Very much so. Outside today, it is covered in a lot of snow. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I can't complain about it. We got a huge storm. Uh, was it was yesterday? Yeah, yesterday. Oh, no. I'm not kidding. This is there's there's like storm. three feet yeah. of snow. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just I'm taunting you with my window <laughs> right here. <laughs> no, that's awesome. 
Well, so, you know, that that's an amazing story. And, and it's really awesome to hear that, you know, the surgical innovation kind of found you over there. And that's, you know, what's kept you. And it's really no surprise then that, you know, all of the success of the, the work that you've put in over the years has started to really pay off. And, um, you know, you've received multiple awards throughout your career. Uh, most recently, I saw it in, in 2019, you got the International Association of Endocrine Surgeons Travel Scholar Award. Um, I was curious a little bit about that. What's What happened there? Did COVID kind of impact those plans or were you going to share research internationally? So uh, luckily that happened right before COVID. We were, um, it was August of 2019. Um, the organization had a meeting in Krakow, Poland. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was able to go there and to present our work. Um, which was a great opportunity. It's really a, a, a fantastic organization of um, endocrine surgeons from all over the country and, mm-hmm. a, and a great opportunity to just share what people are doing elsewhere and really learn um, from our colleagues internationally. Um, so I was very lucky to get to do that. Um, there was a meeting in 2021 in Kuala Lumpur that was supposed that was mm-hmm. scheduled that got canceled, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but hopefully this August is in uh, Vienna, Austria. So we're hoping that that one will be able awesome. to happen. I hope so. Yeah, yeah. That, that sounds awesome. Um, <laughs> I think one of the things that um, we came across in our research, uh, Claire, was that often you've described surgery medicine really a team sport, um, which I mean, I think we we hear that sometimes, but it's obviously like some people probably live it more than others. It sounds like you, you really believe in that. Um, what influences uh, that view for you? So I, I think it's a really fitting analogy for a lot of medicine and surgery, um, you know, on, on multiple levels. Um, I think one of the things that drew me to surgery in the first place is, you know, how an operating room is really, um, it, it, it just embodies that idea of a team effort. You know, you have, um, you have everyone from in the OR that is working towards the same goal, which is getting the patient through the operation safely. Um, but everyone kind of has their own piece and you can't do other people's parts. I can't operate on the patient and be an anesthesiologist at the same time. You need anesthesiologists focusing on, you know, keeping the patient uh, physiologically intact and, and, you know, intact airway and safety. And you need the surgeon to be focused on the operation. Um, you need your support staff and your nurses there in order to do your job. Everyone is really there with the same goal. It's a single focus. Um, it's just a really neat experience. And so I think that's one of the things that drew me to the OR. Um, and then, you know, I also think it gets played out on multiple levels, especially in medicine, everyone's becoming very subspecialized and has a specific focus, um, but you can't, you can't do it alone. You, you know, you have to have a, an expertise in one thing, but also keep an open mind and bring in experts on other things because patients aren't going to fit into you know, one specific thing. Mm-hmm. They have lots of things going on and you have to work together to figure out, you know, what's going to be best for that specific patient. You know, I think one of the things that folks underappreciate in terms of the complexity of the team support in, in surgery medicine is that let's say in a company like Seamless MD, we have the same team, right? We don't really rotate people in and out, but when you're in medicine, I mean, you might have residents and fellows rotating in and out, or even if you're in a community hospital, it's different folks on service at the same time in the OR, you know, the anesthesiologist could be different today than it was yesterday, the nursing staff, the surgeon. Um, so it is a team sport, but it feels like you have like a team that can change dynamically depending on the day. And it just seems really hard to be able to be that cohesive 
um, in that environment. And it's a very high risk environment. So I'm, I'm always in awe at how folks in, in surgery and medicine could somehow make that team sport work, despite the fact that frankly, your team is changing every day. It's pretty crazy, isn't it? <laughs> no, that's a really good point. And I think, you know, it's, it's, we're especially feeling that right now in the midst of COVID and, and staffing shortages. So it's totally true. You know, you, you come into work one day and so-and-so is out, but so-and-so is covering. And I think you have to maintain that sense of flexibility of, okay, well, you know, here's, here's, here's our task for today. Whoever can, whoever can help me get this job done, this is what we're going to mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. So you're totally right. It's a, it's an ever-changing team, um, but, you know, keeping that, keeping that focus. And it's, it's nice to work with people who all are here for the same reason, right? We all have a higher goal and that's why we, we are doing what we're doing. Um, so I think as long as you keep that focus and, and you know, are, are flexible, uh, you can accomplish the task at hand. Yeah, and I think especially during COVID, um, I think folks on the outside, we often have underappreciated like how much like frontline workers like yourself have gone to bat for, for the public. I mean, so here with the big snowstorm yesterday, uh, I was hearing about how there were healthcare providers who you know, we're, we're driving to the hospital for work and like miles of snow and like, you know, oh, be the snow. And, um, a lot of them got stuck on, you know, on the road. So they're getting out of their cars and they're basically just walking the rest of the way to the hospital because like their patients take care of, especially during COVID. So it's just incredible. Um, gosh, um, got a bit sidetracked. <laughs> Alan, you want to bring me? No. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think you're exactly right. We were talking this morning that, um, you know, it's, it's how much it's shifted from, you know, everyone focusing on, okay, this, there's this acute event, we have to work through it. And this is really becoming a, a chronic issue and just trying to keep everyone's morale up and mm -hmm. everyone, you know, I think, I think it's getting harder and harder to, to sort of push through this, you know, what, mm -hmm. what was an acute event now is sort of a new way of life. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's going to be an interesting challenge um, moving forward, but absolutely. I mean, I, I feel so lucky to work with, um, you know, people. I, I don't feel like I've been at the front line as a, as a primarily elective surgeon, but absolutely my colleagues that are in the emergency room and in the ICUs um, are really, I think, taking the brunt of it. And it's just been um, awe-inspiring to watch for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, it comes across like you're, you're very humble, uh, Claire, Dr. Graves, you, you are incredibly humble. And I think it's, it's interesting because from any, any, if anybody does any research on you online, you'll see, you just have the most enthusiastic praise from all of your patients. There's only ever five-star reviews out of five. And it's, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not rigged. It's not, you, you, haven't, paid, <laughs> you haven't paid these patients to do that. Um, and so I, I'm curious, like, how do you think your participation um, or how, how do you show up each day to really impact the patient experience and, and put patients first? What is it that you're doing that's contributing towards that positive patient experience? Well, that's a very kind question. Um, you know, I, I just feel lucky to get to do what I do. I really feel like it's a privilege to get to take care of patients. Um, and one of the things that I, one of the things I enjoy most about my job is getting to know my patients as people. And, you know, I think just that aspect of it, listening to what they have mm -hmm. to say and, and, you know, taking into account, um, you know, kind of other things that may be going on with their life and how that's affecting the problem that they're there for, even if it doesn't seem related, mm -hmm. you know, I think, I think taking the time to really get to know someone and listen, um, you know, so often we're sort of rushed through things, um, but just really 
listening to a patient, I think is, is, you know, number one thing that I try to do when I, when I see patients in clinic. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that goes a long way. I think people really appreciate that. um, And, and having that time and that connection with their doctor. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, we hear that a lot. And I think if you could stay connected to a patient 24 hours a day, every single day, every single patient, you know, at scale, that would be the ideal situation where you're able to really check in with each patient, listen, hear what's going on with them, and then, you know, figure out a way to solve it together. Um, It kind of brings me to the next point. We're talking about COVID and, you know, staying connected to patients. What's neat is your program actually implemented digital patient engagement or or Seamless MD's app in 2019 before COVID even hit, which in reality is uh, an early adopter. You were looking for surgical innovation and you wanted that connection with patients. I'm curious, what was it that motivated you to really bring digital care to your patient population? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a perfect segue because I think that's absolutely our goal with this. Um, And I have to give my partner, Mike Campbell, uh, the primary credit for having this foresight um, because he was the one that really championed this initially before I got here. Um, But I think you're exactly right. I see um, the seamless app helping patients in a couple different ways. Um, Number one is educating patients. So, you know, if I had I, I have a limited time with patients. I'm spewing information at them about their condition and surgery and you know minute details about what's going to happen. And it's a lot to take in in one go, um, especially when you know things are highly emotionally charged. Mm-hmm. When you're telling a patient they have to you know undergo surgery, sort of it, it becomes sort of selective what you can what you can even comprehend at the time. Um, and so having having that app there that has you know our specific information for our procedures our patients our institution that they can go back to and look at later um, is so key Um, and then you know after surgery also the engagement aspect of it well before surgery too but you know having a place where they can check in and and it's sort of a virtual extension of of dr campbell and me um, to say hey you know how's your pain today what does your incision look like here are the things that we're worried about and we're thinking about um, and you can, you know, virtually communicate with us and, and check in that way. That's awesome. And I'm curious, uh, what feedback have you gotten from patients on, on this kind of di- more digital experience? Uh, I've gotten really good feedback. Patients are really enjoying it. Um, I think, you know, it's not, it's not for everyone. It's, a, it's another, you know, app for, for people to sign up for. And so I, I do take that Seriously, you know, sometimes people are a little bit overwhelmed, um, but patients that are into it, I think, you know, patients that are more sort of digitally um, engaged at baseline are really excited about it. They said, you know, this was so nice. I felt like, you know, I knew what to look for. It just, it took away, I I joke about the black box of surgery Mm. where a lot of times, you know, you go to surgery and then you come out of surgery and there's, you know, just a lot of mystery around it. Um, they said, you know, it took away some of that, you know, I, I knew what to look out for. I knew what to be concerned about and what not to be concerned about what was normal. You know, patients are always worried, well, is this normal? Is this not normal? Um, and so a lot of that normal or not normal, we can, you know, just cover with some education. Um, but it's so hard to just fit everything into those, those in-person visits. So to have mm-hmm. this extension of us is so key. Yeah, it kind of reminds me how, um, you know, I, got, I myself come from the clinical world. So if I have you know, a parent or a loved one who's going through a journey. Um, I, I think sometimes I take for granted, like my ability to, I don't know, interpret the information they're given and, and help them get educated and understand it. Um, and so I think one of the things that, you know, we've learned from that here at Seamless is, okay, well, we have to break that down into 
bite-sized pieces or lower the literacy level or just make it easier for folks from all kinds of walks of life to understand. So uh, it's awesome to, to kind of hear from, you know, frontline clinical experts like yourself who, who really get the value of that. Um, you know, one of the things that, that we've heard from our, our team members who've worked with yourself directly at UC Davis is you've been a pretty big champion of actually, I think, educating patients on the initiative and kind of being really involved in the adoption. Um, not every, you know, physician thinks that way. Sometimes I think some physicians rather that be handed off to others on the team. Um, is there, I guess, any reason why you, you think physicians should play, you know, maybe more of a role in, in kind of helping to drive adoption? Yeah, I think it depends on the institution and the situation. Um, for me, I find that, um, you know, I've just spent that hour with a patient building trust and getting to know them and introducing them to what's going to happen. If I say, hey, here's here's this thing that I think will help us, you know, in, in your um, path to surgery and afterwards, um, that that has a lot more weight than if someone else call, comes in, you know, a new face, again, you know, team the team aspect is certainly important, but you know, a new a new face comes in and says, "Hey, here's this other thing. This, you know, more paperwork to do." <laughs> you know, it's a little bit different than than if I personally just introduce it to them and explain why. You know, that if there's a reason why, it's much easier for me to explain that um, than someone someone new coming in and trying to start from the beginning with that. But, but by the way, uh, you you are completely right based on the data that that we've seen internally where. Um, you know, again, you're right, not every organization has the same resources or time for physicians to be as involved in that education, but for the ones who have the time to invest in it, it definitely actually pays off in, in adoption and engagement rates. And I think what we just found is, to your point, when the physician who spent so much time building trust really advocates for something, even if it's like 10 seconds of advocating for it, <laughs> the adoption is actually that much higher. And it, it's kind of like if your physician asks you to follow a treatment protocol, you're just a lot more likely to be compliant from what we've seen. So yeah, the, the data backs up exactly what you're telling us today. Oh, interesting. That's good to know. Mm -hmm. That's good to know. Yeah, I think it just makes a big difference to know, you know, why too, right? Patients mm -hmm. are going to be much more engaged if they understand why they're doing something um, than if it's, if it's just a blanket statement of do this. Mm -hmm. You know, I think for all of us, it's, it helps to have that internal motivation <laughs> to, to know why am I doing this? <laughs> so it's funny. So that, that that concept, I forget what it's called, Alan, but I know from our health literacy experts and patient education experts, they've shared that same concept with us. And so I'm, I'm I think you're the first one that's actually brought up that concept around and what do you call it, like internal motivation coming from understanding mm -hmm. why you why? should do yeah. something. I think it's like behavioral change theory, Alan, or yep. I think I've heard that here. But I, I, I don't know if that's because of your you know humanity, humanities background. Claire, that, that you actually have that, that insight, or I don't know, but I haven't heard that from a physician so far. I've been doing this for like, like nine years now, and I haven't heard that from another physician, so kudos to you. That's interesting. <laughs> I did not know the technical name for it, but <laughs> that's good to know. You, you intuitively figured it out, right. so that's awesome. That's great. So, Claire, we had a question. Um, you know, as the industry shifts more towards value-based care and uh, pay for quality or fee for quality. One facet of surgical quality that is becoming increasingly relevant are patient reported outcomes or PROs um, in, you know, hip, to, uh, total joints and orthopedics, hip and knees, for instance, PROs 
um, have even started coming into the payment models and reimbursements and they're, they're weighted for um, the actual patient reported outcome. So their question is, why do you feel that PROs are so important to collect regarding quality of care? And I should uh, just um, uh, preempt this by explaining that you are collecting patient reported outcomes with SeamlessMD and this digital technology. So question is, why do you feel that it is important to collect these PROs? I think you're exactly right. I think in the U.S. there's a big push towards um, that becoming a, a metric or a more standardized metric. Um, and I think uh, I think there's a couple reasons for that. I mean, number one, you know, our goal as physicians is to help patients and to improve their lives. And so it seems like the most logical outcome to assess, right, is how, how do patients feel that we're helping them or are we helping them or are we not helping them? Um, so I think I, I you know, I, I think that there's really no better outcome than that. So it's, it's key to check in and just make sure that we're accomplishing the goal that we want to be accomplishing, but from the patient perspective. And I guess, Claire, you know, as clinicians, we often worry a lot about clinical outcomes, so complication rates, mortality, readmissions, et cetera. But, but often patients have a different view of what success is for a surgery. So, you know, using orthopedics as an example, again, that could be I want to, you know, walk up the stairs without pain, or I want to be able to, you know, walk my my kid down the aisle at, at her wedding, you know, next year. I'm wondering from, from a patient perspective in endocrine surgery, how do patients view success for surgery? Because I'm guessing it's quite different than maybe what, what a surgeon might think. Yeah, I think this is absolutely um a, a big point in endocrine surgery. Um, luckily, our outcomes, you know, from from a more a technical morbidity and mortality standpoint are very good. Um, and so, um, you know, I think it's, it's, we're definitely le learning more about patient reported outcomes and how we can better incorporate them into our practice. So there's a few, you know, thyroid specific um, patient quality of life um, uh, metrics that we've been working with um, in the field. Um, but I, I do, I agree. I think, you know, the main, the major things that we worry about in thyroid surgery or parathyroid surgery is recurrent laryngeal nerve injury. So voice quality plays a role. Um, and then obviously major things like a hematoma, um, and, and calcium levels, which can sometimes be a little bit tricky, um, to measure symptom, symptoms from. Um, and so with some of these sort of more vague quality of life issues, I think, you know, our metrics aren't perfect yet, but we're, we're working on that and trying to figure out exactly what, what patients are looking for um, and what constitutes success. And I know earlier in the conversation, I mean, for you, the um, sort of uh, in-person, or not even actually in-person, but kind of the face-to-face -face interaction with patients you, you felt was really important for the overall patient experience. I, I know since COVID, you've probably done a lot more telemedicine and, and virtual and all that. Um, but I guess now, what are we like almost two years into COVID? I think a lot of it shifted back towards face to face. So, given that you've now had the experience life uh, as an endocrine surgeon with not, not so much virtual, a lot more virtual than now, maybe it's kind of plateaued a bit. Um, where, where do you see that going uh, in terms of like is more virtual care for endocrine surgery in the next couple of years? Like, what do you think is going to stay virtual for you? What do you think is, is really not working out virtual? Like what, yeah, what's been that like, what's that been like for you? That's a good question. I think, um, I think we're learning a lot uh, with this new, um, this new era, sort of being forced into doing more virtual visits. 
Um, and I think, you know, I, I certainly like meeting patients in person before I'm going to operate on them. I think it's so important to, um, you know, little things like watching them come into the room, you know, how mobile are they? Mm-hmm. Um, you've got I think you get a, a much better global sense from seeing a patient's whole body in person um, as to, you know, how they're feeling, you know, how anxious are they, what's going, how sick are they, or other things going on that I need to ask about. Um, So I think seeing a patient in person um, before I operate on them is still um, very key for me and something that I've been pushing for. Um, But I do think that, you know, for a lot of our routine post-operative visits, two weeks after surgery, um, you know, I need, I need to see their neck. And so luckily I, I'm able to see that over, mm-hmm. <laughs> over Zoom, which is nice. Um, and a lot of our patients, um, you know, in, the, in our Northern California area are coming from, you know, three, four hours away, way up towards Oregon or, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in the mountains, um, in the Sierras. And so to have them, you know, take a whole day off of work to drive all the way in to see me for me to take a look at their neck, you know, just doesn't make sense. And so um, as long as I can safely see what I need to see and and talk to them and, and make sure that everything's okay, um, you know, we have moved towards doing a lot of those routine post-operative visits virtually. And I think patients have really appreciated that. Um, I think, and I think there's, there's somewhat of a personal choice. Some patients would rather drive and come see me and, you know, they feel more reassured being there. Um, and so that's fine. Um, but patients that are comfortable with it, you know, I, I have no problem with it too. So I think, I think there's, um, you know, a patient comfort and choice aspect to it as well. Can I ask you a really far off, like, uh, surgical innovations, technology question. You can, you can tell me if this is just really, really dumb and, and all that, but because I, I know we were reading your bio and uh, you were really big into innovation surgery. And I mean, you maybe I mean, especially because you're in California, maybe you're following along with all the, mm-hmm. I don't know, the whole metaverse stuff coming out, you know, Facebook becoming meta. And um, I'm just wondering when you think about the future of surgery and the fact that with things like the metaverse, or even just let's call it more virtual reality. I mean, you could imagine a world in the future where you're physically in California, but maybe through robotics and more of a metaverse experience, you could operate on someone in New York. Um, like, do you think we could experience that in, in our lifetimes in surgery? Like, do you see that making sense at all or not? Uh, love to get your take on that. Yeah, you know, um, I think that's a great question. I do. I think that um, the technology is is definitely getting there. Um, and I, I certainly think that's going to be something that we're going to see in our lifetime. Um, I think, you know, obviously there are so many levels to it. You have to have someone that's there. What if something goes wrong? You have to have a competent team ready to take over at the mm. bedside. Um, but I can certainly, I can certainly see it happening where you have, you know, a, a team at the bedside and then you know, someone highly specialized comes in, you know, from remotely uh, to do something. So I do think that's going to be, I do think that's going to happen um, soon-ish. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that comes to mind is I know, like, I'm not sure if UC Davis does a lot of telesimulation kind of teaching, but I know, I think people often kind of video in for that, but I guess imagine a world where you're in a metaverse and you could actually be there with, you know, the trainee mm-hmm. and work with them on the patient. That'd be kind of neat. So Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think there's a huge, um, you know, a huge um, market is what I want to say, mm-hmm. but <laughs> opportunity for education uh, and virtual simulation. You know, I, I so much of surgery has been traditionally 
learned by by doing you know the the traditional mm -hmm. surgical c1 teach one or c1 do one teach one right. um and there's been you know with with more um realistic virtual um simulators and encounters you know there's been a, a appropriate reassessment of is this really safe you know now we have other alternatives we should we need to rethink this we need to do more virtual simulation we shouldn't be you know practicing on patients and, and i think there's a there's a healthy mix of of both of those things you have to you know i think you have to um, under appropriate supervision, also learn by mm -hmm. you know, actually doing things. But um, but absolutely, there's a huge opportunity for more virtual simulation and, and education and surgery. Do you think there could be a future then where, like, let's say you could really well image a patient completely, like th 3D wise, and then translate that into a, a virtual reality environment? Do you think as a surgeon, you might actually practice that actual case before you went and did it at some point in the future? Yeah, I think that's a possibility. We've been, um, Dr. Campbell and I have been playing around with a few uh, 3D printing models for things, um, you know, things like neck hematomas to teach mm -hmm. residents how to, um, you know, quickly be able to reopen the incision and, and release the hematoma. Um, and I, I definitely think with, with 3D printing and 3D modeling and, and better imaging, I think that's absolutely going to happen. Oh, that's incredible. That's actually really cool. yeah, yeah, that's really that's really awesome. And being in the Bay Area, you're likely exposed to all of these these new companies and uh, innovations all the time. One last question that I had for you, Claire: If you could give advice to any other uh, physician leaders out there uh, regarding adopting digital patient engagement, or uh, or at least a patient engagement strategy that's well equipped for our new kind of virtual care world, what would your advice be? Uh, I think just being able to take advantage of the technology that we have, you know, every, all of our patients or most of our patients are walking around with a, with a computer at their fingertips. And, um, and so that's just a new, a new method of being able to interact with our patients. And so I think to be open-minded and really, you know, look at all of, of the options that that opens up and sort of rethink our traditional model of doing things and, and, and think about how we could do it better. Oh, that's great. Um, so just being mindful of your time, Claire, we're going to shift the conversation to what we call the fast five lightning round. It's basically five questions to get to know you a little bit better for our audience. Uh, the first question we have is what is your favorite book or book you've gifted the most? Um, so I have two, if that's okay. <laughs> um, but my favorite book from childhood is Matilda by Roald Dahl, mm -hmm. um, always a favorite book. And then recently I've been gifting a really amazing book called Good Talk by Mira Jacobs. Uh, it's my first and only graphic novel mm. um, that I've read and it's just fantastic. And so I've been, I've been highly recommending it. That's awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm adding that to my list. That looks cool. Um, question two, this is specifically for you, but uh, the Bulldogs or the Crimson Tide? Oh, what a timely question. <laughs> I know. Uh, well, I, <laughs> I grew up in Atlanta. My dad is a Georgia Bulldog. I grew up going to the games and I am so excited that they're the new national champion. So That's awesome. how about them dogs? They had a great, yeah, how about them dogs? That's good. <laughs> Uh, question three, would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds? Uh, I'm going to say the ability to read minds, but only if I could turn it on and off. I don't mm -hmm. want to know everything <laughs> at all times. <laughs> Fair. That, that's usually our follow-up. You know, when people say read minds, like, what if you can't turn it off? That's good. <laughs> then speed. <laughs> then definitely speed. <laughs> yeah. 
So, so, so the crazy thing, Alice, so Alan's right. We, we always have that as a follow-up question. What if you couldn't turn it off? But you're the only person who's ever like on your own saying, well, <laughs> only if I couldn't turn it, but not if I couldn't turn it off. And so, so you clearly read our minds. <laughs> it was so the first thing I thought of. I, I, yeah, taking it to the extreme. I was yeah. like, wait a minute. I, don't, I definitely don't want that. Yeah, that's like a Twilight Zone episode or something. Um, all right, question four. What is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane? Uh, so we recently here, this is another timely question, did the first um, transoral approach for thyroidectomy. Wow. Um, and so we, we did a combo of transoral and submental with a small incision just right here under the chin. Um, but it's a laparoscopic procedure. Um, you can also do it robotically that allows us to remove the thyroid without having to make a cervical incision. Wow. Um, and so when I first broached it with patients, they say, you're going to, you're going to do what? <laughs> so it definitely sounds insane. Um, but we uh, are lucky enough to have done our first couple patients just last week here. So excited to get that program up and going. That's amazing. Wait, so, so you're, you're going in through the mouth? Wow. So yeah, we make the, the traditional ways to make three incisions um, just inside the lip, um, just out, uh, outside of the gums, and then tunnel up and over um, to be able to get to the thyroid down here in the neck. Um, a, a modification is to make the, the extraction port um, to take the specimen out just right wow. here under the chin so we avoid having to go up hmm. and over the chin for removal. But yeah, <laughs> through the mouth and, and chin. So random questions, because I'm curious, like, like what, what percent of patients who would otherwise get uh, a traditional thyroidectomy would be eligible for something like that? So there's, there's been some studies looking into it. Um, it depends a little bit on your criteria. Um, certainly with us starting out, we're using very specific criteria. So patients, you know, I'm, I'm not doing cancer yet or known cancer. Um, and uh, patients that have inflammation or thyroiditis, I'm excluding at the moment. Um, but sort of, you know, people that have been doing this for a long time, really experienced providers have been expanding that criteria. And it, it's up to, I think, around 40 to 50% of patients would be eligible oh. if they're interested. Oh. Yeah. Oh. This is the first I've heard of, mm -hmm. of that. Wow. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. The, the big pioneering um, team is in Thailand. Um, so they were really the first to, to start it probably in the early 2000s. Wow. Um, and then it's been catching on in the U.S. Um, at uh, primarily academic centers, but um, gaining popularity for sure. Wow. Okay. That's, That's really, really cool. Yeah. Um, last, <laughs> last question that we have for you. This is a uh, pandemic kind of lockdown related question. What is one hobby or activity you've gotten into since the beginning of the pandemic? Um, so I did do quite a few, I baked bread and, you know, I did some of the trendy <laughs> things, but our major one, um, is that my husband and I uh, got a puppy, uh, in June of 2020. So that's Billy. She is now a 90 pound, uh, Rhodesian Ridgeback. Um, so she is very active and, and keeps us busy and, um, we're having a great time. <laughs> that's awesome. So yeah, I, I, I went off a, a dog during the pandemic, right? I did. I did yeah. get a dog. She's she's quite a bit smaller than the ninety pounds though. <laughs> she's thirty five pounds, so about uh, uh, a third of that. But I'm I'm curious. There's obviously a ton of like hiking trails and mountains uh, where you are. Billy is with you the whole time, running through those mountains, or. Oh yeah, yeah. she is. Uh, she is uh, hard to tire out. Right. Um, so we have a great time. Um, I've been. We've been hiking and running and 
uh, we kind of started out slow until she got about a year and a half. And so now we're, we're fully mm. okay. So I've been trying to, to get her, um, her stamina up. She has kind mm. of short bursts, but mm -hmm. trying to, but she, she is right there with me on uh, runs and hikes and yeah, she just loves being outside and running around. So that's so cool. <laughs> you don't, do you, do you surf ever? Uh, I have taken lessons, but, um, I have not regularly. Got yeah. it. Okay. No, just a random, uh, I saw a picture the other day or a video of a dog on a surfboard and I figured, you know, and they were in California. I think they were in San Diego, but, um, just like, you never know what your dog can get up to. You're running with your dog. They're going to run marathons with you. And there's some dogs that are surfing. It's really cool. That's awesome. Well, that's uh, amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> Well, Claire, I just want to thank you so much. <laughs> I have seen here. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Go, go for it. Yeah. Oh, I was, I was just going to say, you know, here in Sacramento, we have two rivers. And so river activities are a big mm -hmm. thing. Um, and so there's a lot of stand-up paddle boarding. Right. Um, and so I do see a lot of people with their dogs out on their stand-up oh, no paddle way. boards. That's so cool. <laughs> so that's always a fun one. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, awesome. Well, Claire, I, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. Um, you brought a lot of wisdom in terms of what you're doing with innovation-wise in surgery, uh, as well as digital technology and how you've implemented that at UC Davis for your patients, really the holistic view that you carry for your patients. And, you know, it, it speaks volumes to why you're getting such enthusiastic praise from your patients. And uh, I hope some of that knowledge translated today for our audience. I'm really, uh, really appreciate the opportunity of just being on the receiving end uh, of, of, of all the, the topics that we shared today. But thank you so much for joining. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been an absolute pleasure and nice to get to know both of you. Thanks so much, Claire.